It's a Tuesday edition of PFTPM, and it's just me today. Mike Florio here with you. Eventually, somewhere, somehow, here we go. The big reveal is coming in time. Trust me. Trust me. They're figuring it out. Until then, let me tell you this. When the camera finally does turn on, you won't see Shereen Williams. She is doing... Hey, hey, there we go. Hi, everybody. How's everything? Shereen Williams is doing her duty today as a member of the Hall of Fame selectors, and she's been working hard all day, along with the rest of the group, crafting the new class of modern era finalists who will get an up or down vote. And then you've got a coach, a contributor, and a senior. She presented the senior committee member, Drew Pearson, for consideration today. So she's off, but it won't just be me. We've got three different guests who'll be joining me over the course of the next hour. We're going to start in a few minutes with Miles Simmons, our newest arrival here at ProFootballTalk.com. Tom Kern of NBC Sports Boston coming up later in the program. And then MDS is going to join me for just a two-man weave on the divisional round awards, which is good because with only two games and only Wait, four games and, and and only four winners. It's kind of hard to do the full set of awards with three people. And since I usually let MDS and Shireen take their picks first, I'm left searching for someone to give an award to. And that would have been very difficult to do if we would have had three, not two today. So we'll do that later in the program. Before we bring in Miles, though, the one point that I really want to hammer home. And Sims and I talked about it a little bit today without the benefit of some words of wisdom from Brett Favre, Hall of Fame quarterback, who played most of his career, but for a season and a half at most before the NFL had its concussion epiphany, and he played 321 straight games. That guy clearly had concussions. He clearly returned to games in which he had suffered a concussion. There was no protocol requiring that someone who was diagnosed with a concussion be held out of action. And Andy Reid, the Chiefs coach himself, mentioned that in the old days, Patrick Mahomes on Sunday, once he was in the concussion protocol in those old days, would have been back in the game at some point before the game ended. That's just the way it was. And Favre's comments to TMZ from Monday, I think very important for everyone to take to heart. Now, look, we all as football fans just want to be entertained. You know, unless you're a Bills fan, you're hoping that Patrick Mahomes gets cleared to play after suffering that concussion on Sunday. And I've seen different reports and different accounts of whether or not it was a neck thing and his neck was impinged in some way and that caused the wooziness and he didn't really have a concussion. Look, he was diagnosed with a concussion, period. He's in the concussion protocol, period. And he's not getting out until team doctors and, most importantly, the independent neurologists say so. Favre's advice to Mahomes is don't try to fudge things. Don't keep your mouth shut if you have a headache on Friday or Saturday. We've seen cases where quarterbacks have put their hands in the air and said, hey, I'm feeling the effects of a concussion when no one else would have known the difference. If you feel that way, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the sport to say so. And the reality is no competitor is going to be inclined to do that. That would be the ultimate act of true selflessness, not for your team, but for the sport, for yourself. It's one of those weird situations where it's important for you to be selfish, but your short-term selfish nature is I want to play. Your long-term selfish nature is I'm not going to play under these circumstances. 
And that's the kind of selfish that the sport is trying to to promote from a cultural standpoint. It, it, it isn't there yet, but that's what the goal is. That's what the hope is. And, you know, I get uncomfortable when I see the report that was published earlier today from ESPN. I think it was an Adam Schefter report that the Chiefs are optimistic he'll be cleared to play. I don't want any pressure. I don't want any expectation. I want the protocol to play itself out. And there will be pressure on the independent neurologist because this is important to the league to have Patrick Mahomes on the field this weekend. And I've been pressing gently for some transparency and some information about who's making the final call. How is that going to work? They'll give you the protocol, but they're not going to give you names. And I understand they don't want individuals to be pressured by anyone but at some point someone's got to sign the paper that says cleared or not cleared and and i i i think it's it's fair at some point to ask who that is and who's making this decision and uh, it's 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 a far more important point than we realize because it doesn't happen very often i can't think of a time that there was a question about a quarterback one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL with a concussion, whether or not he was going to get cleared before the next game, a game of this magnitude. That, to me, unless I'm forgetting something which is entirely possible over the course of the last 12 years, this feels new. And if it's not brand new, it's something that hasn't happened in a long time. So we'll be keeping an eye on that throughout the course of the week. Without further ado, though, let's bring in Miles Simmons, the latest edition of ProFootballTalk.com, previously covered the Panthers and the Rams, and Miles joins us now. Good afternoon, Miles. How are you? Doing well, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great, and it's great to have you. Let's start where I was just uh, uh, talking about Patrick Mahomes and this concussion thing. Isn't it? I mean, am, am I missing something? Is there a time where we've had an issue like this with a, such a great quarterback with such an impactful game, and we're caught in this situation where we just have to wait and see what the doctors do? Yeah, I, I don't recall one. And, uh, you know, as you were just saying that, I was trying to think of one and, and I really couldn't. But I think you're right. It is so consequential what this is going to be for Patrick Mahomes, because, as you said, this is important for the league that he plays in this game. And so you don't want that, whoever that independent neurologist is, to feel any pressure to clear Patrick Mahomes if he is not ready to play. And I think, you know, based on what Brett Favre was saying, it's not just about uh, it being important for the league. It's about being important for him and his family. You know, his fiance is pregnant. Now, this is something that I think has to go through your mind at some point. Who am I going to be for my child in the future? Who am I going to be for my family? And so if Mahomes is feeling any effects of anything, he should not be out there. Yeah, and that's where Favre's advice is coming from, because Favre played in that era where there wasn't the sensitivity that there now is. So he's walking around like so many former players who played in that era, Miles, thinking that there's a ticking time bomb in their brains. And imagine waking up with that every day, thinking, is today the day I'm going to start to lose my faculties? That's where his advice is for Patrick Mahomes. And it's hard when you're 24, 25 years old to envision a future when you're 54, 55. But trust me, guys, if you're lucky, it will happen. That's where Brett Favre is coming from. And I think that's where Patrick Mahomes really needs to take his advice to heart. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's, you know, as somebody who's still in their 20s, it's still a little hard for me to envision that kind of thing. Uh, you know what? Coming up at some point in my life, and hopefully it does. But I think you're absolutely right, Mike. You cannot just be in the moment sometimes when it comes to your brain. This is something that you need to have for the rest of your life if you're going to have a good life and, you know, and keep all of your mental faculties. And obviously, we also want to see Patrick Mahomes play this game for as long as possible. So if that has anything to do with it, like I said before, you know, if he's feeling anything, he needs to not play. And we're in the information business, so we crave more information, not less. And I'd love to know who's making this decision. But at the same time, I don't want someone having pressure placed upon them by over-the-top Chiefs fans who insist on their quarterback being available. Like, I, I don't want anyone to have to go into hiding this week. But th this, is th this is the job. This is the way it works. And there's only so much that you can keep tucked behind the curtain before people start wondering what's going on. And, you know, what Brett Favre said, during that interview with TMZ is this is a test for the NFL and let's see if they get it right. And there won't be a right or wrong. We won't know because it's not like Miles, they're going to put Patrick Holmes on the field and people are going to be saying, wow, he's messed up still a week later. I mean, it's not going to be perceptible from the viewer's standpoint if there is some lingering fogginess or headaches or anything like that. We're not going to notice it. And that's why it's even more important to fully understand where the boxes get checked, who's checking the boxes, who's making sure that the long-term health and safety of Patrick Mahomes is being protected. Yeah, exactly. And so if if people, I think, were to find out who that neurologist is, like you said, there could be some meddlesome Chiefs fans. I probably know a couple who are very interested in seeing whether or not Patrick Mahomes is going to be able to play. But at the same time, it is one of these things where it is, it's bigger than just this game. And as we know, this is a huge game, but it's, it's more about his career. How can his career continue to unfold? And how can he be a good example for guys to maybe say, look, if something's not right, you know you need to say something. You cannot just continue to go out there and play and risk yourself and your, your long-term health just for one game. It's just not worth it. One of the other great quarterbacks in football who, when you look at his statistics for this season, you would think he's playing this weekend, but his team was 4-12 and despite Deshaun Watson having one of the great seasons of any quarterback in the NFL this year. He posted a tweet today, and look, we have to consider everything he says within the context of what's happening. Everyone knows there's an issue between him and the Texans. Everyone knows he's inclined to get out of Houston. He tweets today, I've been trying to have some patience. I told my mama she should pray on it. And my first thought was, gee, you know, people are going to say this is a song lyric, and it turns out that it is. It's from, it's from uh, a future song. Uh, Codeine Crazy, I believe, is the name of the song, although that's not my age group by any means. But I had some younger reporters reach out to me and tell me that's exactly what it was. But still, Miles, it would be naive, given how big of a deal this is, for people to not look at that and say, yeah, it's lyrics from a future song. But at the same time, he knows and we know what's going on. And I looked at that as just the latest, just the latest little piece of evidence, just the latest little thing that adds a little more heat to a hot situation in Houston. Oh, 
Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I think anytime somebody's tweeting out song lyrics, there's a purpose to it. It's like when uh, a decade and a half ago when everybody had MySpace pages and you would put your song on there, you know, it was to say, oh, this is my mood right now. I'm really, really happy. Uh, you know, my boyfriend just did something really nice for me or I'm really angry because somebody just broke up with me. It's the same sort of thing, I think, when you've got guys now tweeting out song lyrics and whatever it is that they are, they have some sort of purpose behind them. I don't think anything like this in this social media age where everybody is online, everybody's got Instagram, everybody's got Twitter, everybody's doing Snapchat. Most people now even have TikTok. Everything has a purpose once you reach a certain level of celebrity. So I don't understand exactly what he, the connection is with Future that he seems to have because the, I was on two, then I took it to a 10. That also was a Future song lyric too. So it's interesting to me that Deshaun Watson just loves to quote future, but there has to be some sort of thing that's also behind it because nothing is just benign these days. And this comes one day, Miles, after the Texans interviewed Eric Bieniemy. They got a special dispensation from the league, permission from the Chiefs to talk to Eric Bieniemy before the Chiefs' playoff run ends because the Texans had failed during the Kansas City bye week to interview like Eric Benemy like every other team did, except for the Eagles, who presumably will be able to interview him as well. They got to the party a little bit late. They have a different reason for not interviewing Eric Benemy the first week after the regular season ended. Is that enough? I, and I, I wonder, with the tweet today, you know, is Deshaun Watson as skeptical as I am and you may be about whether or not they're just interviewing Eric Bieniemy? to placate Deshaun Watson. I reported over the weekend that Deshaun Watson also recommended that Robert Sala be interviewed, and he was completely ignored on that one. They didn't make a request at any time to talk to Robert Sala before or after the first week of the process. I think Deshaun Watson is, or at least should be, skeptical about what's going on, and I think that tweet has something to do with expressing his current state of mind, his current skepticism about whether or not the Texans really are trying to fix this, and if so, are they going about it the right way? Yeah, for sure. And look, I think it's interesting that Eric Bieniemy would even accept the interview in the first place after what was going on um, there. If you know, if you don't, if if the Chiefs have a bye week and everybody is able to interview this guy and you don't do that at that time, what exactly are you doing? And so I think that should certainly factor into it. Um, but when it comes to Deshaun Watson and whether he's placated enough by this, I don't know that it would make me feel that placated just because, oh, now you're deciding that, okay, now it's really a problem and now you should actually do something that I recommended to you, even though sensibly the best quarterback that most people have ever seen in their lifetime has said, I recommend this guy. This guy is somebody that has helped me in my career. And so now that's something that can maybe help you in your career as well. So the other thing that I just kind of thought was interesting is, you know, if you're Eric the enemy, why did you not just tell him to kick rocks? Because that is something that I might have done, even though obviously there's only 32 of these jobs and only a certain amount of them come open every single year. But I don't know, Mike, were you surprised that the enemy didn't just tell the Texans to kick rocks? Yes, but also, Miles, you, you go into this now with some power. They need you. 
If they want to salvage their relationship with Deshaun Watson, they've got to come get you. That means you can ask for a little more money. You can ask for a little more security. You can get one of these six-year deals that the dysfunctional teams seem to now have to give out in order to convince people to go work there. But for enemy, I said this earlier today with Sims on PFT Live, I would want to budget up to two hours. Me with Deshaun Watson, one-on-one, in a room, and it may not take two hours. It may take five minutes. I want to know. If I put my name on the bottom of that contract, is that going to be enough for you to be all in? Are you my guy? Are you here? Or are we going to be doing this dance throughout this first offseason? Because I'm not taking this job, Deshaun, if I think you're not going to want to be fully committed to being the quarterback of my football team. Yeah, for sure. Because otherwise, why would you not stay in Kansas City, continue to perhaps win Super Bowls with Patrick Mahomes until the perfect situation comes up? Because right now, if you're Eric Bieniemy, despite not getting uh, that many looks, I guess we could say, in this particular coaching cycle, you're always going to be a hot candidate as long as you're working with Patrick Mahomes and you're working with that offense and that offense is as productive as it continues to be. So if this is not the the right fit if this is not the perfect fit and if Deshaun Watson isn't saying yes if you come here I'm here with you and we're all in on this then I don't think that that's a perfect fit for Eric Bieniemy. you know the other thing too Miles and this may be a reason why Eric Bieniemy didn't say no the NFL is a very unique industry it's 32 billion dollar businesses most of which are run by monarchies and if you get in the business of pissing off sorry London one you may have trouble getting your foot in the door with others. I mean, look at what Josh McDaniels is dealing with three years yep. after he spurned the Colts. He's having a hard time generating real interest. And now the Eagles are interested because what the hell else are the Eagles going to do, frankly? They've got a job that's almost as undesirable right now as the Texans' job. But I think there's something to that. Even if you don't take the job, going through the courtesy of sitting for the interview, of playing the game, that is something that, that I think was smart for Biennemi to do because you don't want other owners to hold that against you next year. Yeah, that's true. And, and when you think about it that way, it's also the, the, the thing of, oh, well, if I get into this interview and no matter what I'm going to do, then I'll probably have a better interview the next time. And whether it's a fit or not, because not every job is a fit for everybody or every coach. Um, but if you get into that interview, you say what you need to say, you find out what you need to find out. Maybe you actually end up thinking it's better than you might have thought it would be coming in or you figure that, OK, yeah, it's actually exactly what I thought so I don't know I think what you're saying about it being the gatekeepers and all that that probably is true too so it does behoove him whenever he gets the opportunity to then take up that opportunity and take it seriously so before joining us you were with the Panthers before that you were with the Rams and the Rams are going to create some intriguing headlines to say the least over the course of the offseason we're going to play what Sean McVay the coach of the team had to say on Sunday, the day after they were knocked out of the playoffs by the Packers, regarding Jared Goff's job, not just his starting job, but his spot on the roster. Here's what McVay had to say. Is there any scenario that you can see where Jared would not be on the roster next year? You know, like I said, Gary, we're, we're in a situation that we're in evaluation mode. Um, you know, all those things are things that, you know, we're, we're moving forward. We're looking forward. And and I can't, you know, answer any of those questions until, like I said, I take a step back and, and you evaluate everything that uh, is in the best interest of the Rams. 
Miles, here's my question for you. Is this a case of Sean McVay being so polite and courteous to a reporter and not willing to say that's a clown question that he legitimized the topic? Is that what's really going on here? Uh, it's interesting. And uh, shout out to Gary Klein from the uh, Los Angeles Times for the question and give us this fodder here. Uh, I think it's really interesting to see what happened to Jared Goff over the course of the season and how Sean McVay talked about him over the course of the season. Because there was one point where Sean McVay literally said to, in response to a question about Jared Goff, our quarterback has to stop turning over the football. And in my time covering the Rams, and I covered Sean McVay for basically two and a half years after he got hired until just before the 2019 season when I left that organization, he will go on very long answers. And sometimes you might not get that much information about it out of it, but he will tell you at least words. And so when he gets that succinct to me, that is him sending a very clear message. And I think when you go through a regular season where you actually had a giveaway in every single game, yes, the quarterback obviously needs to take better care of the football. And when those things kind of happen, when you see what happened with John Wolford starting that playoff game, even though Jared Goff said he was okay to play, he may or may not have been, obviously was just coming off of that thumb surgery. There is a little bit of a fissure there. And it's that last week they talked about how, you know, they talked to each other. They were able to work it out. But at the same time, I don't know that it's just a clown question at this point. Uh, because Jared Goff did not start that playoff game. Because Jared Goff has not necessarily been progressing over the course of the last couple of years. It's not necessarily unfair to ask the question, is there a scenario where Jared Goff isn't on the team anymore? Last one for you, Miles, and, and I appreciate your time today. The Rams, when you were there in 2019, and I recall midway through the offseason, there was the question of what they're going to do with Jared Goff. He had three years in. He was eligible for a new contract. And I was fairly vocal, in my opinion, that they should let it play out and they should try to find somebody else. If he doesn't rise to the level of true franchise quarterback, they rushed to give him that $33.5 million contract. How surprised were you, scale of 1 to 10, when they did it, how much they gave him, when they gave it to him, when you found out they were doing it? Um, uh, let's I'll, I'll call it maybe a six or a seven. Maybe a six. I wasn't that surprised because that's the way that they do things. Uh, they When it came to Todd Gurley, uh, they did the extension a year early with him, uh, earlier than they needed to with him. Um, the thing that did surprise me a little bit was just kind of the timing because of where Jared Goff was in his cap room. Obviously, when you have uh, the fifth-year option, you can use that to maybe defer a little bit down the line and keep yourself in a situation where you can continue to have a little bit more room under the cap, sign more guys. I was not surprised by the amount they gave him because that's basically the going rate for quarterbacks, especially if you draft one number one overall and you trade up to get him number one overall, then you expect that eventually – you're going to have to pay that paycheck. And the fact that they did it after going to the Super Bowl and after what was a very good year for Jared Goff in 2018, uh, it, it, that didn't shock me. I, but I was kind of surprised that they did do it um, before the 19 season as opposed to waiting to before the 20 season just because of the sort of implications that that had. But in terms of were they going to let it play out, I, I didn't think that that would ever happen because one of the things Sean McVay was really staunch on was – 
he wanted to have Jared Goff as his quarterback if he was also going to sign a long-term extension there. So it's one of the things where they are now intertwined. No, Sean McVay did not uh, pick Jared Goff at one overall. That happened the year before he got there, but he is basically married to Jared Goff, and that's something that he wanted. And so now it's on Sean McVay, I think, to make sure that Jared Goff does continue in the progression in his career, and that's something that they're going to have to figure out over the offseason. It's amazing in hindsight, if they hadn't done the long-term deal with Todd Gurley, they could have separated with him after the 2019 season, five years of his rookie deal done, become a free agent, go to Atlanta or wherever else. And then this year, if they hadn't done that extension, Miles, they could have said farewell to Jared Goff and gone in any other direction they wanted in looking for a quarterback. All right, Miles, we got to go. Appreciate your time. We'll have you back on again. And when we return, we're going to talk to our good friend Tom Curran of NBC Sports Boston about Tom Brady, a game away from the Super Bowl. We'll be back with more PFTPM right after this. You never know where we're going to find Tom Curran. It could be on the golf course. It could be out behind his house. It could be parked on the side of the road, scaring the crap out of us as semis whiz by. Here he is in his normal habitat, the studio at NBC Sports Boston. Hello, Tom. How are you? It's been hey, a while. This is great. I don't understand why you shut me off, but apparently it, uh, my number has come up again. I couldn't be happier about it. Well, I shut you off because the team you cover stinks. Can't disagree on that, Mike. And I'm not seeing quick rebounds. So looks like uh, the next thing to go will be the annual Florio Christmas card. You can take him off. Take him off. You don't have to send it to him anymore. The team stinks. It's been a very eventful, though, 20 years for the New England Patriots. And it, and the dynasty was born in a weird sort of way 19 years ago today. The tuck rule game, the last game at Foxborough Stadium. No First ball. thing that, that you remember about that night? Just the visual of it, knowing this was the last game that was going to be played in Foxborough Stadium, knowing everything that the franchise had been through, knowing that they were playing the hated Raiders who really probably short-circuited the best team in Patriots history prior to that year's team in 76. So you go in there and the lights, you know, bright white lights are hitting on mounds of snow and you're looking at it and you're like, they haven't done anything to the field. They're going to play on this stuff. It really felt, Mike, like we were in a snow globe and it was a celebratory mood in so many ways. You just can't imagine a better scenario to close down a stadium and then everything that followed. I'm told that after the fumble, or at least what everyone thought was a fumble, fumble, the fans began to stream for the exits, and then actually they were let back in once they heard Walt Coleman's voice over the PA system. Where were you when all that was happening? Press box, first row. I was writing at the time for the Metro West Daily News, uh, suburban paper in Framingham, Mass, circulation about 35,000. So I was sitting right there and uh, watched it and. You know, I obviously, as we all did, thought fumble. And the one aspect of it, too, and there's a little background noise here. Hopefully it stops here in the studio. Um, but the one interesting thing about it was the replay, you never see Brady's other hand touch the ball. You can presume that it did. And I asked him in the post game, 
He said, Tom, did your hand ever touch the ball again? And he was wearing a scally cap. And the Patriots used to have their post-game press conferences in that stadium in the weight room. And Brady's like, no, I don't think it did. Just kind of smiling. Um, but, yeah, my perspective was right there in that front row of the press box. Yeah, and, you know, nobody really knew what the tuck rule was, although it had kind of been percolating in recent games. There had been a game earlier that year where Kurt Warner did something like that, and it was impacted, and it actually had been reduced to writing just the year or two before the 99 season, I think it was, that it ended up in the rule book, and, of course, it lasted another 10 years or so before it was wiped out. They weren't going to take that one off the books too soon otherwise it would have legitimized the complaints from the Raiders but that was really something and now let's pivot to today here we are 19 years later Tom Brady in his first year with a team other than the Patriots on the brink of a Super Bowl and Tom of all the great things that Tom Brady's done or that anyone in sport has ever done the idea that he's now at a 90% success rate getting to the final four over the last 10 years is incredible to me I think one of the most amazing aspects of it too, Mike, is when you look at the quarterback field, for everything that Brady does in high leverage situations, and we're talking about this today on some of our shows, when you match up the four guys remaining, Brady has the weakest arm, he's got the least mobility, he wins on brain, poise, situational awareness. 18 for 33 for 199, people are saying that's not really a very good game. He didn't turn it over. He cashed in every turnover with a touchdown. And when you look at the list of guys who played, Pat Mahomes couldn't, Patrick Mahomes couldn't finish his playoff game last week. Lamar Jackson, same thing. Alex Smith couldn't make the start. Jared Goff has surgery. We've seen Aaron Rodgers laid low by calf injuries. Brady just keeps answering the bell year after year after year. The guy who was supposed to succeed him here, Jimmy Garoppolo, can't stay healthy in San Francisco. That, to me, Mike is the one thing about Brady that when Bill Belichick decided he was going to push away from the table, he didn't take into consideration enough. 40, 43, 45, the guy doesn't miss games. It really is amazing. The presence of mind that he has in the pocket, the ability to get rid of the football, not take the big hit, the ability to to step up. And there, there was a moment at one point this season where he moved up in the pocket as the walls were caving in around as the defensive ends collapsed it that way. It almost looked like a Madden glitch. It was a jump cut. That's how quickly he moved up in the pocket to deliver the football. He's got that sixth sense. He knows how much time he has. And and you're right. He answers the bell. But for the 2008 season where he took the low hit from Bernard Pollard and was out for the year with the torn ACL, he just keeps going. And that is such an underrated aspect of valuing a quarterback. Can he play every week? And, you know, you, you mentioned – the, the 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 numbers down near 50%. Even as the completion percentage shrinks, all the other numbers go up. The yards per attempt go up. The yards per completion against Washington were, were 17 per completion. He's getting the ball down the field like Bruce Arians envisioned when he joined the team. But the reason they won last week is because he said, screw this, I'm going to throw it to Leonard Fournette. And that's the reason they won. In those games against um, New Orleans that they lost, they came out, Mike, and immediately said, okay, we're going to try and throw it. And that wasn't really the way to go because they went three and out, three and out, three and out. Brady still needs to be accurate into small windows with guys who aren't really accustomed to playing with them. So you do have to be a diverse team. You do have to be able to do it both ways. And I think that who, which of the quarterbacks has the most – answer this, Mike – 
which of the quarterbacks of the final three have the most pressure on him to play a seamless error-free game to get them to the Super Bowl? I think it's Brady because that Todd Bowles defense, as well as it performed and all the takeaways that it had, it had four guys chasing the wrong guy, Alvin Kamara, on the, the double pass that Winston threw a touchdown pass. There were two near punt return touchdowns. There is no margin for error for the Bucks. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, the Bucks defense woke up in a very stunning way in the second half as it looked like the Saints were going to go up 23-13 to 13 or 27-13 to 13 when Antoine Winfield ripped the ball out of Jared Cook's clutches, and it changed after that. But you just don't show up confident that your defense is going to be doing that. You do need something from the offense, and Brady's been getting it done. What are the folks up there saying about the scoreboard for the post-Brady-Belichick relationship? Is it one nothing Brady based upon what we've seen so far? Yeah, it's one nothing, and the scoreboard watchers are out in force. You know, people like me who said that, the, you know, the reason the Patriots were not a scintillating team offensively in either 18 or 19 wasn't because of Brady's declining skills, but the fact that he really had no one to throw to feels somewhat vindicated. The guy's 43, he's got 40 touchdown passes. But I think a lot of people are saying, look, if the Patriots wanted to pivot, and they are doing so. Bill Belichick with $60 million, and as you pointed out today, maybe even more than that in cap space coming up. Don't render him not a factor going forward yet. To me, Mike, it's very simple. If Bill Belichick doesn't have the conceivable answer for a quarterback before Tom Brady retires at 45, then it was an absolute beatdown and a terrible mistake to move away from him. End of story. And it's already headed that way. When Belichick watches Brady play in these playoffs, where do you think he lands on the scale? And and let me just come up with a rough uh, positive and negative. On one end, he'd be wearing a Brady Tampa Bay Bucks jersey. On the other end, he'd have a Tom Brady voodoo doll. Where does he land on that spectrum? I would say it's probably a dot or two away from the voodoo doll. He's not holding it. <laughs> he's not holding it, but he's, he's online scrolling, trying to find where he can get one delivered fast. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine today. I said, what are the odds that he just calls up Rex Burkhead and said, look, I know you got the bad knee, but is there any shot that you can get down to Tampa this week and just run into Brady's right hand and try and tear that open again like you did a couple of years ago? I mean, oh, that's you know, wrong. Imagine if he goes and beats Green Bay. It's two weeks of Bill screwed up. No, he's going to have to have a voodoo doll, Michael. Yeah. Uh, and, and what Patriots fans, though, are they supporting Tom Brady in the second act or are they are they uh, anti Tommy? I think it's more Tampa Bay is good for me and I'm enjoying the hell out of it. But the very vocal F that guy he left group is certainly well heard as well. Um, you know, we get it as we cover Brady like a team unto himself here at NBC Sports Boston. Why are you covering Brady? He doesn't play here anymore because it gets clicks. Um, but I think that more than anything, <laughs> there's just the sentiment of, look, he was a part of the family 20 years, Mike. And I mean, if you're in the media, let's be honest. Am I talking to you? Do I have the job I have? Do I have this wonderful $188 suit jacket and a job in the media had I not been lucky enough to cover the Belichick Brady Patriots? I don't know, but I'm lucky I was. I, I want to see the guy do well. It's, I mean, is that, am I forfeiting all journalistic credibility, whatever amount I still have left, if I say I want the guy to do well? First of all, you paid too much for the jacket. And second of all, he's in the most non-threatening spot 
for the Patriots. He's not in their conference, and they're not in the playoffs. It's not like they're on a collision course for the Super Bowl. The Patriots are done. It's over. So if you want to be invested in the postseason and you still have warm memories of what Tom Brady did, you 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 support him now in his time as the quarterback of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because it doesn't diminish anything he did with the Patriots, even if he wins another Super Bowl, right? Well, that I think really, because there are as many Belichick files as there are Brady files. And every time Brady does something that defiles the Belichick files and Bill Belichick is diminished, then those people who are Belichick loyalists come out with the bayonet sharpened. And we saw that this week. I can't remember who tweeted. I think it was Chris Gasper from the Boston Globe tweeted um, Brady playoff wins without Belichick two. Belichick wins without Brady playoff wins without Brady one. And people were went berserk, but facts is facts. And maybe Brady's a carpetbagger and Bill's transition back to being a playoff coach is going to be harder than Tom's where he can just parachute in. But it's not like Bill isn't part of the reason the team is a little bit bereft of talent and completely hosed if Josh McDaniels takes the Philadelphia Eagles job. Yeah, and that's the next topic and the last topic. We'll let you get back to your real job. What are the chances in your mind that McDaniels ends up jumping ship now? I'd say 51-49, and it enters into that equation both do the Eagles want to move to him and is this a great position for Josh to go into? I mean, Mike, answer this for me. Would you rather be going to a place that has two quarterbacks, no cap space, and a five-year contract that's lucrative, or would you rather stay in a place that has no quarterbacks, $70 million of cap space, you don't know where the next opportunity is going to come from or if your team might get even worse? I mean, this is... I hate to say frying pan into the fire or a Sophie's choice, but what do you think? I mean, which would you do if you're Josh? Well, I think it all comes down to how stung I am by the fact that the decision to not take the Colts job has apparently removed my name Mm -hmm. from the A list down to the B or C list. How many more chances am I going to have if I don't take this one? And it's not like the Patriots are going to quickly turn it around and I'm going to be the Brian Dayball next year. I'm still going to be on the B or the C list. All right, we're going to let you go, Tom. We appreciate you as always when we return. Michael David Smith for Divisional Round Awards. We'll be back with more PFDPM right after this. PFTPM Tuesday edition. As always, we do awards in this spot. We, we don't have Shireen today. We don't know what to do technologically. We're putting up all sorts of different possibilities here, but it's just MDS and me. While Shireen and the rest of the selectors continue to grind through the 18-person potential Hall of Fame class, although the most to get in will be eight. MDS, how's it going today? It's going well. Missing Shireen, but, you know, better her than us sitting through that long meeting. Yeah, you know, people ask me all the time, do you wish you had a vote on the Hall of Fame committee? And I can say this, acknowledging, number one, that they'll never give me one. But number two, that is the last way I would want to spend eight and a half hours or more on a Tuesday when there's work going on. So, Shireen, thank you for being the one to do it. Okay, let's get down to it. The Offensive Player of the Week, Defensive Player of the Week, Rookie of the Week, and Coach of the Week for the divisional round. Just the two of us today, MDS. Let's start with Offensive Player of the Week. Who do you have? Well, I have Aaron Rodgers, and he was just so cool and methodical 
And I never once thought it was in doubt that he was just going to move the ball at will against a good Rams defense. Now, granted, a Rams defense where Aaron Donald was at less than 100% healthy, but I just thought that, that Aaron Rodgers could do whatever he wanted. The stats are right there. He had 296 passing yards, two touchdowns, a rushing touchdown. He had no interceptions, no sacks, no fumbles. He, he barely had any negative play of any kind. Um, you know, I mean, he had some incompletions. What more can you say? He, he was outstanding in that game. I thought one of his best games of an MVP year. Yeah, and the touchdown run with the pump fake was awesome. Everything he did was awesome. And it's a Rams defense that came into the game as one of the best in the NFL, and they looked like anything but against Aaron Rodgers and company. I'm going with Stephon Diggs. You know, it was hard to find another one. Tom Brady didn't have a great game statistically, and I think the defense had a lot to do with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers winning the game. But uh, Diggs had over 100 receiving yards against a defense with a great secondary. They didn't lock Marlon Humphrey up on him all game long. Maybe they should have. Maybe they should have doubled him all game long. He had six catches, 106 yards on eight targets and a touchdown, proving yet again that he's the guy that boosted this team to the next level, that they were already a playoff team without him. But one of the reasons they're playing this weekend is the impact of Stephon Diggs and the ability to get the ball to him, even when playing a team that has the the manpower to take Diggs away. They still weren't able to do it. Yeah, and, and, you know, it really was probably the, the one of the, the lesser performances, I think, from the Bills' offense. But Stephon Diggs is, is such a difference maker. That was one of those games where you really do look at it and you wonder, would they be here if they had not made that trade? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, defensive player of the week for the division around MDS, who do you have? Well, I'm sticking with the Bills, and as I said, it wasn't one of their better games overall from their offense, but but the biggest play of that game came from Teron Johnson, who had that 101-yard interception return for a touchdown that really just completely changed the game. It looked like it was about to be 10-10, to and the next thing you know, it's 17-3. to It was a, a almost a 14-point swing in that it looked like the Ravens were about to score seven, and then the Bills scored seven. Um, it, it, after that play, it was never in doubt who was going to win. Before that play, it looked like a game that was going to go down to the wire. Yeah, that was the turn out the lights moment for me. There was still plenty of time for the Ravens to get back into it. But when you got 17-3 at that stage of the game, the notion of the Ravens suddenly pulling out two touchdowns is is a long shot. And then Lamar Jackson gets injured, and that was that. It was over, and it was that 14-point swing from the Teron Johnson touchdown return that made all the difference. For me, the defensive player of the week is Devin White of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I've been praising him all week, and for good reason. He was, in the first half, uh, a, a force. Uh, he, 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 not that he tried to do it on purpose, but his hit on Deontay Harris knocked Harris out of the game. And that's what happens when a guy who's not very big, isn't just returning punts and kickoffs. He's out there playing offense. He runs into a guy like Devin white, and you may end up not being able to continue again. Not that he did it on purpose, but it's that physicality that he brings to the position that seems rare in today's NFL. He's physical. He's intimidating, but he doesn't cross the line. He's got controlled aggression where he goes just far enough, 
but he pulls it back in and doesn't get a 15-yard penalty. And then in the second half, his recovery of the Jared Cook fumble, it looked so easy, and we just think, oh, yeah, ball's bouncing around. He's a professional athlete. He should be able to scoop it up. How many times have we seen defensive players freak out when that ball's popping around, and the next thing you know, the offense recovers it because they're trying to pick it up and run with it, and it bounces off their hand, and it ricochets over here. And that's one of the things I love about the shape of the football. You never know where it's going to go. He caught it clean, and he was gone. And that allowed the Buccaneers to tie the game up, and then his interception allowed the Buccaneers to blow the game open. If he plays like he played in the second half for the next eight quarters for the Buccaneers, they're winning the Super Bowl. The question is, can he keep playing like that? All right, rookie of the week, MBS. You got a guy who has a, a pretty clear connection to the moment where Devin White picked up that fumble. Yes, I do. You and I were thinking the same thing on that Devin White play. As I'm watching that play, I'm thinking, boy, this guy could just as easily be an offensive player. If, if you know, his high school football coach had told him to play running back or tight end, He'd be in the NFL on offense. That's just the kind of all-around football player he is. But my choice for rookie of the week was actually the guy who forced that very fumble you were just talking about, and that's Antoine Winfield Jr. That was such an impactful play that I'm glad we're mentioning both players who were involved in it. But it, it was kind of funny to hear Bruce Arians talking this week and, and taking a little bit of a shot at Chase Young of the Washington football team and saying that Antoine Winfield Jr. really deserves to be the defensive rookie of the year. I don't know if I would say that if we're really talking about the, the totality of the season, but Antoine Winfield has had a great year. He has started all 18 games now for the Buccaneers. He's had a big impact. And I'm going to be excited to see when Aaron Rodgers goes picking on a rookie cornerback, is Antoine Winfield ready for the best quarterback in the league in the biggest game of his very young career. I think that's going to be one of the real interesting things to watch this week. I love the determination from Antoine Winfield, especially because he had a shot at an interception just a few plays before that. He's, he seemed even more motivated to make something happen. All right. Uh, for me, it's Tyler Johnson, Rookie of the Week, the guy who made that incredible spinning, lunging catch on third and 11 on the drive that ultimately gave the Buccaneers the lead, 23-20. to 20. MDS, who do you have for your Coach of the Week? I, I was so impressed with Andy Reid, the way he coached after Patrick Mahomes got hurt. Andy Reid has a great track record of that, whether it's last year when Mahomes got hurt in the regular season, whether it's with the Eagles when Donovan McNabb got hurt. Great job by Andy Reid. And actually, Andy Reid earlier today was one of my goats of the week because of running Patrick Mahomes on third and one. So he gets a bad award and a good award. For me, the coach of the week, I got to give it to Todd Bowles for what he did with that defense. He had them ready to go without that defense. We're talking about the Saints playing this week, not the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. All right. Thank you, MDS. We're going to take a break. When we return, we'll open up the mailbag. More PFTPM right after this. about Matt Ryan because you, you know you have the fourth pick you know a lot of people see that quarterback you know which is kind of how much have you thought about that and where do you see Matt Ryan working in next year with the Falcons well we, we got a long way until the draft uh, just like with anybody on our roster I mean you know, I'll be evaluated I got to earn my job every day so we're excited about players that we have and we, we want to obviously go through the whole thing but to give you I can't make a statement today because we we're, there's a long process ahead of us but Matt, Matt Ryan's it, it's been a terrific quarterback, and, and I got all, all the respect in the world for Matt Ryan. 
and I look forward to working with them. Let me just say this. I love business suit season in the NFL when we see guys who otherwise never wear a coat and tie and a dress shirt in a coat and tie and a dress shirt. But why do they do it? The coaches don't wear suits anymore on the sidelines. They wear their officially licensed Nike gear. Why not have the coach dressed at the press conference, the introductory press conference, the way he would be dressed for a game? I would not have known that that was Arthur Smith. If you had shown me that photo earlier today, even against the Falcons backdrop, I'd have said, well, the COO is talking today about some new charitable endeavor or something. I would have never known it was him. I would have never guessed it in a thousand years that it was Arthur Smith. Well, these guys just need to wear what they're comfortable in, especially because it is an inherently stressful and uncomfortable situation anyway. They're never going to be wearing a suit when they do their job. I don't know why they wear a suit for the introductory press conference, and that's all I'm going to say about that. There's a question from Nayata Thomas at Twitter. Can Arthur Smith have success in Atlanta with the Falcons' current roster? Hashtag rise up. Sounds like a Falcons fan to me. I don't think you can have the kind of success that you'll want to have. I think it's time to tear it down and build it up. They're going to have cap issues this year with or without Matt Ryan on the roster, with or without Julio Jones on the roster. And the thing to keep in mind, and we'll get some clarity on this at some point before March 17, what will the salary cap be for 2021? It won't be lower than 175. There's been some talk that maybe it'll still be around 195 so teams can properly operate and, and manage their rosters and not have to cut a bunch of guys. I was told last night 180 is the number to keep an eye on. That's going to wreak havoc on some of these teams, and it's going to be a real problem for the Falcons. And if I was Arthur Smith, I don't know that this is the job I would have taken. There's a lot of factors we've talked about before, but stepping into this cap mess with a team that's just had this lingering frustration that traces back to Super Bowl 51, he's going to be a hot candidate next year with Derrick Henry and Ryan Tannehill. I, I, I would have waited if I were him, but he didn't, and we'll see what he can do. I just think it's going to be a challenge right out of the gates because he's not going to have the same quality of players that he had in Tennessee on both sides of the ball. Um, so, yeah, look, I'm not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not trying to do anything other than wish him well. I'm just curious that a guy who seemed to have so many options and seemed to be in such demand would choose one of the jobs that I had real misgivings about going into this cycle. All right, that's it for today. But before we go, they've announced the full crew of officials for Super Bowl 55. And for the first time ever, a female is on the crew. Sarah Thomas, who's been an official now for five, six, seven years, it's kind of flown by. She's been doing it. She's been doing well, and she's done well enough to now get a Super Bowl assignment. It is based on merit. It's not random. It's not a rotation. You've got to earn that spot, and she's done well enough in the job to earn that spot, and that game is coming up. It's amazing. It's just two and a half weeks away. We're going to have the Super Bowl, and by all appearances, they're going to pull it off. Although I'd rather not be talking about the Patrick Mahomes concussion this week. It's better than talking about COVID. The NFL has gotten it under control. Three games to go, and we'll be here every step of the way as the conference championships approach and then as the Super Bowl comes down the pike. That's it for today. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Everybody enjoy your evening.